A fiddler on the roof? Sounds crazy, no? But here, in our little village of Anatevka, you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking their neck. It isn't easy. You may ask, why do we stay up there if it's so dangerous? Well, we stay because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition. From the musical Fiddler on the Roof, Act 1, Scene 1. Welcome to the Becoming Human podcast, a show about exploring what it means to be alive and curating our trajectory as human beings. And today I want to give a fiddling ode to tradition. Back in episode 18, we talked about a concept called map making. That was about how individuals can utilize perspective taking to understand the world more fully, healthily resolve conflicts, and try to see more of the world than they can with their singular reality. As we've been talking about tradition and progress, I want to give a reason why we should use tradition, and I want to approach it with a similar take as map making. But instead of individual map making as a tool, we can consider the same process sociologically. Sociological map making, we could say. Now, we've alluded to the benefits and the dangers of both tradition and progress, but we haven't really gone into depth. So over the next few episodes, I I want to unpack how both tradition and progress are useful and necessary, and then, of course, we'll go into depth on the specific dangers and concerns of each. But for today, tradition. Full disclosure, if you were wondering, this quote is from my favorite musical. But how does tradition function within the constraints of being alive? And there will be some refreshers here. If you haven't listened to the past few episodes, I'll try to bring you up to speed. If you have listened to them, some ideas are going to be familiar, but uh, we're going to get more depth, considerate reinforcement with some new additions. Because there is a historical map we are working with that transcends our finite beings, learning how to use that might be the most progressive thing we can do. Real quick, I want to thank you for listening. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of podcasts and millions of ways you could spend your time. The fact that you've given me some of it means a lot. If you're willing to help the show, that could honestly make a difference. I don't have a team. I research, write, record, produce, upload, promote, organize all of this myself in my spare time. So sharing, leaving reviews, subscribing, that does more than I'm able to do on my own. And if you're willing to financially support the show, that literally helps me. Uh, It makes it more feasible within my life. Um, And you can do that at ko-fi.com slash becoming human. But let's get into it. Let's learn, let's grow, and let's become more human. A question I want to begin with today. How long can a human being stay alive? Now, that's a loaded question. On one hand, you have the idyllic hope of future technology and medicine, or the the growing fascination with like loading your consciousness into a machine that preserves your being in some way. And, and, And anyone who grew up with watching Austin Powers probably wondered if the whole freeze chamber thing works. 
Or, on the other hand, you have records of, of ages past, of lifespans ranging near 1,000 years. And I haven't seen this general negative disproven yet, but I think it's safe to say that these are not medical records. Here's what's interesting about both of these complicated angles. Human beings have always seemed to yearn for immortality. From ancient quests and, and encompassing ethnic metanarives of mythological heroes to modern billionaires inquiring options that appear to be modern versions of the same thing. People generally like the idea of staying alive, overcoming the temporal constraints of finitude or mortality. What a thought. But it has yet to happen. Now, I'm, I'm intentionally avoiding the religious dialogue here, please. No eschatological metaphysics. I'm just asking how long a human being under the constraints of physical bodily function can stay alive. Good news for us here. The average number has increased throughout history. It has had its seasons of decrease as well, but just in the United States, the number has gone from approximately 40 years to 79 years, and that's from 1860 to the present. And that all depends, too, on social, economic, biological factors. But hey, that's a solid average. Globally, the current guess, and I do think it is a complicated solution to nail down, is about 72 years for life expectancy of the average human being. So you've got 70-ish years, give or take a lot, to be alive. And this gets into the mantras of don't waste a day, live your best life with the time you have, hug your kids, take advantage of every moment, YOLO, if that's even still a thing. Of course, yes, do all of that. But here we are, living within a temporal finitude that doesn't seem to have an alternative. Yeah, I just went through all of that to say what we already know. You're going to die. So is everyone else. Now, there are some outliers here worth pointing out. There's currently still a person alive who is 119, Lucille Rodin of France. The longest recorded lifespan was by one Jeanne Calmette, also of France, at 122 years and 164 days. Even that, depending on how you date the universe, that is still a very small fraction of time compared to the whole of lived history. Again, depending on some definitions and perspective, this has involved a lot of people. According to the Population Reference Bureau, which is an actual thing, there have been about 120 billion people on Earth throughout history. So you, in a handful of decades, will live and die, amongst billions of other human beings, and in the wake of hundreds of billions of others, with billions more yet to come after you. The reason I bring this up is because when we get into this whole discussion about tradition and progress, or, or conservative versus liberal, or when we are debating opinions on certain issues or ideas, there's something about having a proper sense of proportion. Putting yourself in your proper place amongst the reality of life as a whole can be a very diminishing yet a very relieving experience. The whole thing doesn't surround you. You are not at the center of the universe. You are but one small component in a blip of time amongst an immense number of other small blips. And each of these, including yourself, 
is relegated to the time you have and is limited to the context and knowledge available during that specific time and moment of history. And the ideas and perspectives and data we hold are the result of other people working with what they had in the places they were. Coming up with stuff is usually just people responding to circumstances and using what they had to survive and understand the world. And then others come along and inherit that and add to it or alter it. Earlier, we made the case that by all accounts of historical time, even big ideas and major advancements, all of these were initiated by people who weren't actually that different from you. Most human beings, I would say, are regular average human beings, including you. On one hand, this means that they are not inferior. In fact, if I would have been amongst those first billion or so, and you replicated my current being and DNA in that environment, I probably wouldn't have made it, let alone come up with what those civilizations and cultures did. Concurrently, these people of ages past, they were not giants. Socrates is a great example. The modern world adores this enigmatic figure. From what we do actually know about Socrates, which isn't much, the guy was sentenced to death because people didn't like him. We have lots of heroes in the past, and I wonder what would happen if we actually met these heroes. No, in, in the United States, it's the Founding Fathers. Well, if the Founding Fathers of the United States were alive today, I bet the very loud voices of our contemporary culture that laud their praises probably wouldn't like them either. Because we're all just a bunch of regular, average human beings with the same constraints of every other human being. Alright, so you have this initial human dynamic that we all function with similar temporal constraints. There is something about every human being that is quite the same. Once we start there, another dynamic about the human experience, another limitation that we all hold in common, is that how we see the world is limited in the exact same way amongst every single person, too. But it is also uniquely different among every single person. We've all got the same constraint, but we all have it differently. Which, wait, am I bringing up phenomenology again? Yes, but this time I'll use a different angle, qualia. This is a philosophy of mind term that is used to make sense of this weird phenomenon called consciousness. Human beings have a perception of the world, yet that perception of the world is subjective and is based on the unique instance of the one doing the perceiving. Essentially, every single person sees and understands the world with the same limitations and methods, but every single person sees and understands the world from their own eyes, in their own mind, and it is inherently different every single time amongst every unique person. Qualia is the way things seem to us. We all use it in the exact same way, but it is always different from everyone else. Hence, the correlation with phenomenology. Your perception of the world is based on how you experience the world. You could even say limited to how you experience the world. You only have what you have. The information you are working with is based on the experience you've had in the world. Now, I should be honest here, as you're only getting my limited perspective, there's a ton of debate on this. I also took a lot more time to unpack the nature of existence and human perception back in the episodes on argumentation, truth, and map making. 
but this is about you having a sensory experience with existence. You see, you think, you interact with the world around you, and that composes what the world is like to you. For example, if you were to tell me what the color green is like, you have to use your experience of the color green. You might have certain descriptions, you may even have certain scientific information, but you can only use the experience you have. Or if you were describing the sensation of a particular food or drink, you could tell me lots of details about a, a kiwi, for example, but the explicit description of how a kiwi tastes is based on your direct experience. We could have shared language to help categorize the taste. You know, is it sweet? Is it bitter? We could measure the components of a kiwi to help generalize this, the description. What, what is the actual food like? How, how does the exterior feel? But in the end, you can only describe a kiwi based on how you've experienced the kiwi. And how you experience the kiwi is impacted by lots of other variables that are unique to you. By the way, this is why communication and language are so important. It's the attempt to take qualia, come up with symbols, and share it. So that we can do things like collaborate or share the experience of tasting a kiwi. Now, this can veer into relativism real quick. Oh, everything is subjective and there is no truth. Again, I've tried to handle this dynamic in earlier episodes, but it is helpful in considering the limitations of human beings. Not only are we limited by the constraints of time and mortality, we are limited by our contextual minds. This is why you can have hundreds of people all watch the same movie or news clip and have just as many interpretations of it. Everyone's experience of that is going to be different. Everyone brings their own present context to the event, which is impacted by their particular viewing location and the things happening around them and the focus had on particular parts. And how you view the present is based on the information you have to work with from the past. I think sometimes we just wish that the world was more simple. Why can't we all just agree on this thing? Well, you're working with an infinite amount of experiences and therefore interpretations. And, and I think this is also, by the way, why humans have this tendency to group think, especially in response to popular voices. There are these societal spokespersons, organizations, and they're giving us a shared version of existence, and it seems more complete and truer than the individual one that our consciousnesses are carrying around. I think we yearn to have the world simplified and congealed for us, and that's why we tend to get into things like identity politics or straight ticket voting, or taking on an ideology that we hold as the complete thing, because all of that captures the world more than our singular minds are capable of doing. But here's where this whole bit on qualia becomes important for our particular discussion on tradition and progress. You can actually increase and develop your qualia. You, you can grow your perspective of existence. The map-making concept within conflict resolution emphasizes this with empathy. If our standard mechanism for understanding the world is egocentric, our direct experience through our particular eyes, what empathy does is it adds information to the storage bank of experience. You see more. 
But, but another one, as I've alluded to, is information. Essentially, anything that increases your experience capacity now adds qualia that you have to work with that you didn't have before. Learning is just a general act of empathy. You're accessing information that you did not garner directly on your own. Now, how you experience, interpret, and understand that information will uniquely be based on you and everything you bring to the table. But that's not such a bad thing. It, it can actually be valuable. But if we take all of this, the various constraints of time and perspective, what does it have to do with the fiddler on the roof? Well, think back to the episode on ecology that I'm sure you listen to in depth. I tried to make a case for a concept called ecological entanglement back in episode 42, that we are interdependent with every living being in the world, and we should live accordingly. If we are constrained by time and perspective, if we only build the world according to our current understanding, which is but a fraction of time in proportion to history and which, which only utilizes our immediate experience that we've happened to develop through our short lives, that doesn't give us a whole lot to work with. Should there be, then, another phrase? Historical entanglement. These ideas of map-making, of attempting to share the perspective of another to exponentially increase our own understanding, and interdependently working with the experience of others that is also limited, and giving access to all the perspectives that have come not just in the present but through history, should our sense of entanglement also be true for life over time? Based on our constraints, is it a good idea to offer some dependence to the vast amount of experience and information that has led up to the current moment? What historical entanglement does is connect us to a broad range of insight that is not possible if we only use the qualia we have in the short amount of time we have. And within this, I think the map-making metaphor used for conflict resolution is also helpful here. Which begins to make a case for tradition, because tradition is like a map. So, you've got historical entanglement, and I like that phrase. But, I also like this other one. Sociological map-making. If we are interdependent with what has come before us, if we see former travelers as people who are on the same journey that we are now contributing to, I think that offers a possibility of living better in the present. Essentially, by using the past, we are transcending the constraints of time and perspective and are able to make more effective additions, which in the end might only be useful in that they provide future travelers more information to make their decisions about how the journey can effectively continue once we're gone. The human experience might just be a singular journey, made up of billions of other journeys, and we might better execute our small stories if we utilize the grand narrative of which we are a part. Tradition, then, is the means, it is the current map that we inherit. You might enter the world as a blank slate, but you are not entering a world that is a blank slate. We have all received the current map of existence that is based on whatever previous travelers have explored. At the same time, we are now exploring territory 
that was not charted before. Our present moments are unfolding in different terrain. But as the map has expanded bit by bit, we're simply adding to the parts of the map that haven't been filled out yet. We are just regular, finite beings, working with what we have, but we also have access to the overall map from other finite beings who were working with what they had. But just because we inherit this doesn't mean we have to use it or even look at it. And I think the same two issues I've alluded to are worth pointing out. Our first option here is that we could just stop exploring. We could appreciate the inherited map so much that we just want to maintain it. Whatever journey has been ongoing, we freeze it. We go static, which is actually a departure from the very thing that created the map in the first place. When we say things like, but this is the way we've always done it. Well, the current way it's done is the result of people who didn't just do things the way we've always done it. When we freeze the map, I think it's irresponsible and quite possibly insulting to the people that got us to this point. There's a certain responsibility when using tradition well to keep it alive and moving. It's like we're picking up where they left off. They, constrained by time, died. They can't continue what they started. Possibly the most respectful way to honor the past is to do what they no longer can. It's like you're part of a tribe that was building a house, and they got the walls up, and, and now you've inherited that process, but instead, you statically enshrine the house and say, we can't put a roof on, this is tradition. That's one way to interact with this concept of map making sociologically. The other factor here, the reason that I think the map with uncharted territory is a good metaphor, is because continuation is unavoidable. Even if you don't put the roof on the house, the house will still change. So not only is statically holding on to the current map a bit irresponsible and potentially insulting, it's ignorant. And then change that will happen to the metaphorical house without being intentional, that change will likely not be beneficial change. You don't want to put a roof up, so change is going to happen, but it's just going to mean that the walls are going to deteriorate. You're pretending to live in a world that no longer exists, and the only option of the map is for it to become a museum. When it comes to tradition, then, there's, there's two options here. You can replicate the content, do what has always been done, or you can replicate the process. You can use the qualia of time to keep going with what they started, which requires knowing what they started. The difference here is seeing tradition as something that must be held and maintained versus seeing tradition as something that is alive. And you hear this language when people are talking about, you know, the founding fathers or religious systems. And, and in the first episode, we, we discussed how this is a mix of deontology and consequentialism. You know, the, the perspective of moral absolutism, these are the things you have to do. Or on the other hand, you have relativism and it's actually a dance where you have to know what has been because you are finite, because your life is limited and your perspective is limited. And then you use that information to keep walking on the ground while adapting to what is changing. The point is to use tradition to keep on going, to keep it alive, 
to continue the process of exploring the map. Having a proper relationship to time and perspective in the past and tradition implies that it's going to continue, and it's going to continue through you. Sociological map making and historical entanglement, it can be very diminishing. Like, wow, I am barely going to be alive for the extent of history, and there's billions of other people. But at the same time, there's this empowering agency, there's this responsibility. We get to be a part of this. We get to add, although it will be very little, we get to add to the map, which best happens by using the map, by using that which transcends your limitations. Sociological map making within historical entanglement, hence living tradition, which leaves some questions for how we do this, which we'll get into next time. Thanks for listening.